You've joined the Digital Transformation Success Podcast. I'm your host, Priscilla McKinney. I consult with leaders around the globe and bring their teams through a digital transformation journey. Realizing digital transformation across an entire organization is key to business success. While the phrase digital transformation is often used, it's not always understood. So we start each episode with my brief working definition. Digital transformation refers to the purposeful integration of digital technology into all areas of a business. It goes beyond technological innovations in that it requires a fundamental mindset shift of how to operate internally and deliver maximum value to customers at scale. When done well, it results in a culture change to an environment where opportunities for digital technology are not missed but are thoughtfully used to change established practices and processes for greater efficiency, flexibility, and profitability. You'll hear from consultants, trainers, executives, innovators, and thought leaders. We will avoid buzzwords, jargon, and leave behind our egos to help you take that next step toward digital transformation success. Let's dive in. I have with me today, John Dick, and I'm just going to tell you right now, this guy makes me laugh. So we're going to have a good time. This is going to be just a a romp. Um, What they do at Civic Science is so interesting to me. So I'm going to introduce him first, and then we're just going to see where this conversation goes. Because when it comes to a podcaster interviewing a podcaster, you really never know (laughs) where the conversation is going to go. So uh, if you don't know him, John Dick is the CEO and founder of Civic Science. And now there's a couple of other spinoffs from that company. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the podcast too, but he is a polling and market intelligence uh, leader and thought leader. This company is headquartered in Pittsburgh, but really John is a serial entrepreneur and his experience in business formation and business development and marketing informs the way he approaches what the company is doing. So I mentioned he's a podcaster. He is the the host of the podcast, The Dumbest Guy in the Room, which I got to tell you, super funny. Um, and actually just this casual like vignette, you get a, you get to hear just conversational, not, you know, uh, lofty talk, but very conversational speak with some very, very keen thought leaders, Mark Cuban being one of them. But also I love the one you talked to um, just, I think it was in December uh, with uh, Walgreens about health and where we're going in terms of how those things are being digitally transformed and how we're using insight in order to power changes and really interesting pivots about healthcare. So every time out the door, that, that podcast is great. I highly recommend it. And I'll definitely put it in the show notes. But before I get started, I am just going to tell you, John, I think you are the best writer bar none. So there you go. (laughs) I do not say this lightly. I am the CEO of a content marketing house. So when I read a writer and go, I, I wish, I wish I had written this email. I honestly don't know how you do it every Saturday. And if you are not in the know, let me tell you, you want to get in the know with this Saturday newsletter. And I know as soon as I say newsletter, everybody goes, nah, I'm not interested. You are interested in this one. <laughs> so this newsletter is called What We're Seeing. And it is a, a like a who's who of business leaders, policymakers, and celebrities are all of the people listening. And I am telling you, when I get it on Saturday, I'm like, oh, 
And my husband's like, are you going to read that out loud to me? (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's so interesting. It's really about the intersection of everything that they're seeing as civic science. And then it's washed with just really, I think, some insight that brings brings very um, maybe maybe uh, unconnected things. And all of a sudden, boom, by the end of the email, they're all connected. And it's a powerful thing that you do. So without further ado, John Dick, welcome to the show. Well, Priscilla, uh, great to be here. Love your podcast. Look, I, I, uh, that's, that's all incredibly flattering. So it's, it's a lot of pressure to be introduced to someone who's funny because it's hard, you know, not be funny. <laughs> uh, I'll do, I'll do my best. No, but those are incredibly kind words. Um, we work really hard to make the work that we do relatable because we always say that an, an insight's ever more impactful, the more personally relatable it can be to the person you're sharing it with, right? We remind our team all the time that the CEOs and CMOs we work with are fathers and mothers and spouses and sh- grocery shoppers and patients at the doctor, right? They can, they, they don't just live in these ivory towers. They're, they're real people. And they generally understand insights a lot better when you can sort of tie it to things that they see in their personal lives. So we work really hard to do that. And, and it's nice of you to say that it resonates. <laughs> well, I love that. I think that does resonate with me because as a marketer, I try and get people to say, don't be a human and then walk in the door of your marketing office and now start you know, churning out marketing talk, like, wait, go back, wait, 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 when did you stop being a human? (laughs) Go back, be a human, and now talk about marketing or talk about products and services in a way that would resonate with you. And I think that's the tripwire that you make happen with insights. It's like, you know, we, we never stopped being a person when we sat down at our insights or consumer insights or polling desk, you know, why does this matter to us? That is really the big, the big piece. But, you know, first of all, you know, the contributing um, uh, pieces that you provide to places like AdAge, Microsoft News, I think I've come across you on Cheddar and, you know, Yahoo Finance. I mean, just a lot of really big mainstream media is looking to civic science to help understand what people are saying and what they're doing right now, but more importantly, and what we're going to talk about, what we think they might do next. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. And the way that you and I need to get there is the thing that we have in common besides being a podcast host and we're both funny, you know, besides that, (laughs) but um, is that you and I stand at very unique crossroads of market research and other worlds, right? So I stand at marketing and market research and you stand in really the business community at large and market research. So I know that I have a unique perspective, but tell me about your unique perspective there at at, at that specific crossroads. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a learned perspective. I, I don't think I was, you know, inherently born into it or anything, just sort of getting to know different types of business leaders and different types of businesses. The thing that, and you touched on it a bit with what we try to capture with our weekly email is we tell everyone everything affects everything, you know, and, and so much of market research. Well, first of all, everything affects everything and everything's constantly changing. So you kind of have to study it all constantly. That's the story we tell. And what you see a lot in market research um, is very sort of like siloed, vertically oriented thinking, right? Researchers at a restaurant company are studying hamburgers, they're studying breakfast, they're studying bacon. And and what's lost in that is how so many other things in a consumer's life 
impact their decision where to eat, what to eat, whether they want bacon on it, right? And and you can't get that by just you know asking a bunch of survey questions to people about their favorite type of hamburger. You know, you can't get that from a from a, a line on a graph that um, you know might just go up and to the right, representing the quote average customer of your brand. And and I think the that more elevated you get within organ within an organization, the more they understand that, and also too, the more they need that bird's eye view of their not just their their customer and their market, but other markets. Like how is how are trends in healthcare affecting restaurant dining? How are trends in technology affecting shopping? How's the macro economy and the job market and the housing market affecting all of it? And I think the perspective that we try to bring to the market. And that I certainly try to bring in my interactions with whether it's, you know, what I write or the interactions with the media or the or the great opportunities I have to meet with some of these business leaders is to help them step back a little bit from kind of the myopic view of their industry or their customer or their category and really understand those influences, because it is those influences that predict the future. It is finding some leading indicator somewhere potentially completely unintuitive to you that is ultimately going to be the thing that changes the behavior of your customer and changes the trajectory of your brand. Mm-hmm. So there have been a lot of things that have happened like this, and I, I'm going to bring up maybe one example, maybe you can bring up another one, but um, like, for example, you talked about a health, uh, a health trend or a health change that affects then large brands. Um, I think about even like, you know, the advent of the word keto, in, <laughs> you know, in our society, you know, if you were uh, at McDonald's and you were just studying, you know, the dynamic properties of bacon, which come on, that would be a pretty good study. I mean, I'd take it, (laughs) but you're not seeing the big picture of what is happening. And and maybe at one point it was a fad. Then do we notice that this is a trend or at what point is this becoming a macro, you know, event that is now going to have to inform, you know, QSR menu boards, (laughs) right? So if you didn't have your finger on the pulse of some of these trends that were outside of things that QSR would typically study, then you would not really have seen that coming. And what does that mean for people when they don't see things coming? Is there another example like that you can think of? Oh, gosh. I mean, hundreds of them, right? I mean, you know, we're, of course, we're living in this, like, greatest social experiment in human history between COVID and now the secondary implications that's having on inflation and gas prices and supply chains and things. And, you know, it, it's effect, it all affects industries in, you know, different different ways. But, you know, obviously, you know, one of the big things that we pay a tremendous amount of attention to is the rise of political tribalism in the country. And, you know, we can sort of opine about the causes of that. Um, uh, and there's certainly accelerants, right? Social media has absolutely accelerated that. Certain political discourse has accelerated that. But the relationship between people's political attitudes and political dispositions and their consumer behavior, like where they shop, what TV shows they watch, the things they buy, it affects everything, right? And so, you know, we we talk to, to brand leaders all the time about like, they have to pay attention to the emerging and evolving political dispositions of their customers because it affects where they should advertise, Should it affects the social and political causes they should align with. Uh, it, it affects how they should price their goods, right? So, you know, one thing we we know right now is that uh, Republicans are significantly more concerned about inflation than Democrats are. And that may not necessarily be intuitive to the, to the average person. And there's kind of two reasons. One is Republicans tend to, you know, live in generally suburban to rural areas. That means they may have a larger commute. They tend to drive larger vehicles, right? So gas prices and things affect them. 
But also economic concerns and fears are heavily correlated with um, who's in political power, right? And so Republicans right now are, are largely more concerned about things like inflation because they don't trust the current political leadership to fix it. Okay, now those may be rational, rational or irrational points of view, but what matters is, does that person who's concerned about inflation change their behavior? Are they less likely to go out to eat because they're worried about their household finances? Are they less, are they, are they more likely to look for a deal um, a coupon, a discount, because again, they're sort of, they're consciously or not are worried about financial, uh, you know, financial changes. And, and so that, that's probably one of the just big examples that seems to affect every industry. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I've got, I got a million examples. <laughs> well, one that really hit home for me uh, a while back was an indicator that you talked about with this kind of tribalism in the background. And that was uh, how this affected uh, Lowe's versus Home Depot. So expound on that one, because I thought that was really interesting. Um, and it is a really good example of how things like this, you know, political um, uh, situation is affecting business. Right, right. Well, yeah, that's, that's a, a pretty good example. Um, early in the pandemic, like probably late March of, you know, about a year ago or so, we saw right away a, a difference between how Republicans and Democrats uh, were reacting to COVID, right? And, and you know, everyone kind of understands that. I think at this point, Republicans have throughout the pandemics tended to be less cautious about COVID, right? And, and that also means less likely to get vaccinated and, you know, all those things. Uh, whereas Democrats tended to be more cautious and more sort of compliant with kind of the medical guidance, what have you. But we sort of kind of opined early on that that was going to affect the shape of recovery of different types of brands based on who their customers were, right? And the one really good example is sort of Lowe's versus Home Depot. Lowe's tends to be, um, Lowe's stores tend to be located in more suburban to rural parts of the country. Home Depot tends to be more suburban to urban. Uh, you can draw pretty obvious correlations between the political dispositions of the people in those ge geographic areas. And so we, we said we, we expect a brand like Lowe's to see foot traffic return to its stores faster and more robustly and, and Home Depot less so. Um, and that ultimately proved itself out to be true pretty quickly in the pandemic and, and really pretty much throughout. Um, and that also affected different restaurants, um, maybe based on where they were located, like say a brand like Cracker Barrel was seeing customers come back on premise a lot faster than maybe a, a, a brand like... Um, uh, I don't know, uh, say Chipotle that tended to skew more left among its consumer. And yeah, that, that has just, again, continued to be true throughout and will probably be true in some, to some extent forever. Uh, we, now, have, we have, we have, we have, def our brand, our brand alliances have become badges of our identity in ways that they never were before. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Let's talk about the badges of identity and also how we kind of have to fall in line, supposedly, with our people. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, this is what you and I don't like, but yet in that tribalism, what you're talking about is a polarization. And I want to parse that out a little bit because I think it's more complicated than just a black and white polarization. But you know, Chick-fil-A comes to mind in terms of a very polarizing, you know, brand. But it's not that simple. It's not just saying there's one piece. We've kind of honed in on one little piece about tribalism, how that affects it. But again, to kind of come back to your early point is that you kind of have to study everything because there's a lot more going on. And I know as a Hispanic female, I'm pretty sick and tired of people telling me how I vote. 
uh, no, I didn't, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, so there's, there is a, an interesting part where we need to understand that, that, that polarization. And, and maybe that's in one category, but you can't get fixated on one category. And that's what you said at the beginning about sometimes insights get so siloed and it gets so narrow-minded, but we need to broaden it up and kind of understand this butterfly effect, you know, that everything is affecting everything. So let's talk a little bit about how civic science and the way you guys go to market and the way you actually get your data, how that not only helps see these like wider, you know, um, dynamics, but also let's talk about how you parse out these nuances. So how do you find the people like me who don't fall in line, you know, with it? And is there a new trend happening? Are different groups or subgroups re- defining themselves and actually finding themselves in some, you know, pretty other interesting camps that, that, that brands really need to see and understand. So talk a little bit about the methodology, because I think that's what will help bring us to understanding how you can see the big picture and be, see some interesting nuances all while not staying just too damn focused. Yeah. And I'll, I'll try to navigate my way to the answer to your last question um, as I explain it, but so in short, we're a survey company. We've just we've 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 built and sort of discovered a really novel way to do it at a truly unprecedented scale. And I know that's sort of you know a hyper hyperbolic statement a lot of people make, but truth of the matter is it's in this case, no one's ever surveyed at the volume that we do it. And 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 we have polls essentially administered inside of content of you know hundreds of premium publisher sites, and they allow us to ask millions of people questions. Uh, and we've also kind of cracked a way to do it in a cost-effective way um, so that we do it in, in sort of, a, I would say, proactive. So we're, we're, doing, we're asking questions about thousands of topics every day um, on our own dime, right? Because it's, we, again, this promise of exploring the relationship between all of those things is important. And we get you know, millions of answers to these questions and, and allow us to sort of study the intersection of, of all of them. Um, so how we find it, I'll be honest with you, like a computer does that, um, you know, a big, a, one of the biggest limitations of survey research in its traditional sort of form, one is because it tends to be expensive, right? Some, most survey research is based on survey panels where people are getting paid to answer. And so you've got to have like a stockpile of cash before you go out and even ask anything. Uh, so we don't have any of those limitations, but also most survey research is really predicated on hypothesis and hypothesis, human hypothesis is inherently limiting right? And, and biasing of the way research is done. People go and say, I have a couple ideas I want to test, right? What we've tried to do is flip that on its head and say, we have no idea what the hell's going on. So we're just going to ask about everything we possibly can. And we're going to allow statistical techniques to find the things that are related that, you know, maybe you did expect to be related, but the real gold is the thing that you didn't. And we've gotten really good at, at you know, there are over now 350,000 questions in our database that we've asked in the, the history of the company. And when you explore the space between all of those things, some of the stuff you find is just you know, mind blowing. And, and again, really unexpected. Um, it's allowed us to identify, you asked about sort of how, how people and things are changing. Yeah, they are. There are, you know, there are a lot of, I would, I, I'm going to use the word stereotypes, um, which of course has a negative connotation, but we make a lot of assumptions about people because they fit into some fairly obtuse buckets of maybe race or gender, right? And look, when you look at the average of things, that stuff might turn out to be true, but we don't, we aren't average, right? The, the U.S. population isn't a monolith. And you could say, um, like, our, the average consumer of a particular, uh, say, a retailer is, has an average income of $75,000 per year. 
But when you dig a little deeper, what you see is like half of their customers are 150,000 or more and half of them are 50,000 or less, right? And so when you market to the average, you're actually not marketing to any of your customers. You're, you're marketing to this sort of washed out group, right? And so, so the importance of kind of exploring all of these different variables without the constraints of hypothesis really allows you to kind of break, break past those like stereotypical constructs we have in our head and find the actual truth. Mm-hmm. And that's what people say, oh, we are looking for the truth. But I like how you say that sometimes if we're not aware, we are basically designing research in a way that's never going to bring us the truth. And by the way that you're using these native environments in order to gather insights in and without putting someone in a, I'm a paid survey taker, <laughs> you know, mode, this is this is where the innovation is coming. You mentioned that it's very big in the volume. Let, give me the social proof. What, what is the volume? What's the number of, you mentioned the number of questions that are out there, but what are, what are some of the numbers about what's going on and what the scale really is of civic science? So on a given day, we're, we're asking, you're running between somewhere between three to 5 million surveys. A lot of it's dependent on sort of what web traffic is like on a given day or in a given month or whatever, whatever's going on in the news cycle and driving people to the internet. So, you know, that, that in, of a, in and of itself is um, an enormous amount of daily tracking data that we're able to capture. We're, we're, I think, fast approaching 3 billion answers now in our database to all of the questions that we've asked. So just, you know, enormous, like, you know, very, very different type of survey research, I think, than most people are expected, you know, expect to see. Um, about 125 million, I think, between 125 million uh, people have answered uh, at least one of our surveys. Um, so again, we're reaching, you know, a large swath of the U.S. population, which allows us to break through some of those kind of biases we know exist around the kind of small percentage of people who answer surveys for money. Okay. Well, I know that as soon as I hear those kinds of words, I think that, you know, from my perspective, looking in on the consumer insights world, they're always saying things like, tell me something I didn't know about my brand, you know, please quit telling me the same thing you've already told me in another, you know, study. And that is kind of the bane of the existence of either the consumer insights person or the brand manager, or, you know, or maybe in, um, you know, there's a lot of application for people in finance, you know, I need to know where the market's going. I'm trying to predict. So let's make that switch. And let me help, let me understand, um, you know, how you guys fit into this clamoring for, tell me something I didn't know. And also this, uh, the word that gets bandied about a lot, agile, <laughs> you know, right. how is this quick to market, et cetera. But specifically for, you know, this podcast, what does it really mean for a company to digitally transform the way they're gathering information? What, what do you think really is the, the right now important things for them to do and the future of it? Well, I mean, that's a hour long podcast conversation, I'm afraid, but I think if I were to break it down to a couple of, of sort of key things, I would say is first and foremost, I think it's cultural in a lot of these companies where they've, they've really grown attached to these more traditional ways of measuring and the metrics that they create. They've become crutches in a lot of businesses. They're like key performance indicators and people's bonuses are predicated on them. And that's a really, really hard thing to break free from. Um, because again, you've sort of 
grown to assume that whatever number you're tracking along a, uh, on along a time graph is, is somehow sort of indicative of the health of your business. And there's very little evidence that that turns out to be true. And more importantly, those are all backward looking things. They, I can tell you how your customers felt yesterday and maybe how they felt six months ago and maybe a direction, but that is very seldom sort of can project forward. And so first of all, it's, it's getting people to understand that and we've struggled with this, I'll be honest. I mean, when I say the word survey, you use the word polling earlier, which evokes politics, which we don't do. But um, we ask people questions and they give us answers. There's a lot of associated baggage with survey research in the eyes of, of leaders, right? To them, it means it means all the things I'm telling you they need to break free from, even though they still do them. But there's some skepticism about who are the people taking these surveys? Like, are there, is there by, are they, people say they're going to do one thing and then they do another thing. And so you've seen this major shift towards like kind of, well, it was, you know, quote, big data, but, but much more like behavioral analytics has really replaced a lot of survey research as sort of the go-to measure in a lot of these brands, but behavioral metrics are also backward looking. They don't, they don't project anything forward. And what we're trying to, to educate the market on is that survey research done a certain way at a certain scale, every single second of every single day where everything we ask about can be indexed against everything else, that's where you can start to make predictions about the future. If I track, you know, we probably have a couple thousand things in our database that we've asked questions about adoption and intent of new, say new technologies, new trends, mobile payment systems, crypto, whatever it might be. And we ask people, have you done it? And are you intending to do it? Yes, I'm intending to do it. Those questions in a point in time aren't exactly predictive. But when I look at one trend compared to hundreds of others, and I can compare the sort of trajectory of the acceleration of adoption of those things, now it is predictive. Because I can say 10 other trends or products that, that were adopted at this rate, here's where they ended up 30, 60, 90 days a year later. Um, and that gives that starts to build the foundation of actually forward-looking insight. Okay, just as a sidebar, which is a whole nother conversation, but you mentioned in there that people are very skeptical of who are these people taking the surveys and what, you know, is it, you know, looking at basically, is it fraud, is it clean data, all this kind of stuff. The funny thing about that is that you guys are collecting in a native environment where the people aren't getting paid any incentive to do it. And I don't see that kind of uh, rigor being applied to the actual, you know, surveys that where they're getting, um, you know, respondents that are being paid and pulled from major um, major pools and ma major databases that are not being scrubbed. So I just, just side note, that was my little asterisk. <laughs> I find that yeah, interesting. Well, I, and, and look, I mean, it, survey panel, sur survey panelists are people too, right? There's definitely the sector of the, but, but, but if you think about like, who's the person who's inclined to sit at home and answer a survey for five bucks and, and what psychographic characteristics might that person have? They're going to be more coupon conscious, they're more rewards oriented, they're more likely to eat at a value menu at a QSR, like we can see all these things because we study survey. I mean, among the questions we ask in our massive survey is do you belong to any survey panels where you get paid to complete surveys? And when we study the unique attributes of that person and compare them to the rest of the world, there are very big differences. And that can create a lot of, you know, wonky signal in data. Okay, that is a whole nother subject, but that is a great that is a great answer. Yeah. But let's move move yeah. on to um, really one thing I want to talk about is this predictive you know word that you used because you know brand trackers are brand trackers and um, tell me about your love hate relationship with with brand trackers and this idea of how much of brand tracker is a rearview mirror. You alluded to that just a minute. I could tell you what your you know what your consumer what your customers thought a day ago or six months. ago 
ago, but is that really relevant here? So how do people get over this? Like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm looking backwards to how do we move into this predictive mode? Well, I, I mean, I, t- I obviously touched, I touched on it once around this idea that sort of those, those numbers have become a crutch and they are, look, they are effective at measuring what happened yesterday, right? Oh, I ran a campaign last week or this bad PR event happened and I can see what moved in that line, right? And, I, and it's maybe pretty easy to discern why that thing happened. But when you start to try to, when you start asking yourself, this event happened in the world today, it's not affecting my customer yet, but will it? And, and when will it? And how much will it? The, the, the current mechanisms of, 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 um, of brand trackers don't really enable that. And, and one of the biggest issues with it is just simply the brand tracker, along with your, the person who answers your brand question, you may know a handful of things about them. You may have asked them their gender, their age, their income. But those might not be the things that are ultimately going to influence their changing behavior in the future. Uh, what we're able to do is say the person who says, yes, I, I have a favorable or unfavorable opinion about um, Patagonia. Um, we know all of the diff- we know thousands of different things about that person to suggest, OK, that person has um, maybe a particularly heightened concern about the war in Ukraine. And so as prices increase and supply chain issues exacerbate, we're going to expect to see a different level of concern among a Patagonia customer about those things. And so if Patagonia isn't able to sort of adjust maybe some of its marketing and pricing strategies, they're going to have a brand favorability issue three, four, six months from now. And again, it's it's ultimately just being about the the, the granularity and the depth with which we can understand the people who are answering those questions that help us give some 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 glimpse into the future. Okay. So let me just kind of paraphrase here for my audience is that you're not saying that brand trackers are completely useless. Maybe you're saying they're broken in a way, but I guess more to the point of how does, how can civic science intelligence and how can this information that you're collecting in real time at massive scale, how could it maybe enrich you know, what people are seeing in their brand tracker and, and, and what are the four, you know, who are the forward thinking brands that are doing this? Well, so I think enrichment's the right word and enrichment enhancement. Um, it's, we're not going to walk into many companies and who've been running a brand tracker for 10, 15, 20 years and tell them to throw it out, right? What we want to come in and say, and look, even with some of the biases you can see in a paid survey taker, if we track the favorability of a brand using our methodology and one of those methodologies, the lines are pretty well kind of parallel to each other. I mean, directionally, right? What, but, but what we want to come to that conversation and say is not, not exchange your brand tracker for hours, add hours to your mix. Um, because we then, we're going to be able to take the, the, this kind of corpus of information you're building over time and help you to project it forward. Look, a lot of really smart companies um, that we work with that I can mention because we've you know, maybe done public things together, it's no big secret, but say company like McDonald's, T-Mobile, um, really innovative leadership. What's interesting, say, about a company like McDonald's, you, you, I had um, Morgan Flatley, who's the global CMO on my podcast right before the holidays, and you may have listened to it. Uh, we talked about how McDonald's was this like aircraft carrier that turned into a jet ski when the pandemic started, which, you know, they had never moved that fast before because, frankly, their market didn't change all that much, right? I mean, McDonald's is their market share, their customers, pretty much the U.S. census. And so they weren't really focused that much on predicting the future because very few things ever changed McDonald's future. And then the pandemic came along and changed everybody's future. 
And, and that's really when we, our capabilities shined for a company like McDonald's, which again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking out of school. Morgan said as much on our podcast that, that giving them a glimpse into the next week, the next three weeks, the next 90 days, the next six months allowed them to, you know, start to make strategic decisions going forward that panned out for them in spades and their companies really thrived through it. And that didn't, they didn't throw anything away. They continued to use some of those kind of moment in time pulse checks on brand health uh, to measure success. We were tracking the, we were pushing them to make the decisions to ensure their success in the future would be as high as it could be. Oh yeah. And that was a great podcast. And, and um, I also think, um, you know, when you're looking at those kinds of brands, people a lot of times think, oh, this huge monolith, like they're, they're untouchable, but COVID proved that nobody was untouchable. (laughs) Um, And I think there'll be other things like that. So let's switch gears. I just kind of want to end with this thing. This is actually why I reached out to you. Um, I was very interested in something you all put out about how companies really need to think about emerging from and recovering from COVID. <laughs> like, you know, we, we know that these are COVID years. I mean, it's so sad. It's like, make me cry to just to say that, but we know that's true. Um, but what is the unique approach that is really um, a part of any kind of digital transformation of, of the insights function in a company that civic science can help with as people emerge out of this and try and figure out where do they still need to pivot? What do they still need to do? And what is the long work ahead of them in order to really ensure brand health? Well, a couple things. First of all, like COVID's just the thing now, right? And, and we're watching, in fact, COVID is in all of our data has more or less lost its grip on, on the American psyche, only to be, only to be replaced by inflation, gas prices, Ukraine, supply chain, right? And so a big part of it is like, what's the next thing? And how, how, how sensitively is my finger on, on the pulse of that to know when the new thing replaces the old thing as the driver of behavior? So that's, that's absolutely one. Number two is that there, while COVID may have lost its grip on, you know, sort of front of mind, it's not the thing we, we turn to on the news as soon as we, you know, open up our laptops. There are trends and implications of COVID that are here for the long haul, if not forever, and and working to understand those things. Like what was a passing trend? Grocery delivery, right? Like that was one that sort of peaked and plateaued and sort of leveled off. Like it was really important in the early days of COVID. I Um, I read that recently in what what we're seeing, and I actually was... Yeah, you know, antithetical to what I thought really was going on. And that's interesting. Things get put in the, you know, in your psyche or just kind of antidotal evidence that you see, oh yeah, of course that's a massive trend. But for brands, it's really important to know, yeah, but what to what degree, like very specifically, is this staying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and so um there's just so much of that. Telehealth was a huge trend that peaked and sort of plateaued, but we actually expect it to systematically grow, um, particularly among older populations that learned to use technology during the pandemic because they had to. Uh, you know, one, one trend that accelerated during COVID and is here to stay is that technology is not a young person's, just a young person's game anymore. We've, we've, COVID forced a lot of Luddite populations into technology categories that they weren't in before. So when you talk about digital transformation, and that I know you're talking about it in marketing, market research, but that's true across products and finance and everything else. Um, so, you know, I think it's, again, it's really just about 
the element, we, we've talked a lot about everything affecting everything, but I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of other part is, of that is that everything's constantly changing, right? So I, I tell clients this all the time when we go in and share the latest and greatest insights that by the time I walk out the door, get on my plane and fly home, half the stuff I told them could be stale by that. You know, the world is just changing so fast, um, that, right? I mean, any insights versus going, ah. yeah, I mean, it's true, right? It, particularly like when you look at certain methodologies in market research, like the, the quote segmentation, you know, that this, this, like this effort that huge effort that companies undertake to understand their customer base. And, you know, traditionally that's an expensive thing to do, to do a, a true segmentation. It takes a long time. And so by the time you launch it, you go out, the company goes out, your vendor goes out into the field for you, and they come back with your segmentation a couple, three, four months later, then you spend three, four months convincing your company to adopt that segmentation. Now, all of a sudden, it's useless. You're eight months later, and everything that you studied is now different, right? And, and that's, a hard, that's, that's, the, that's the thing that I don't envy among a lot of in-house you know, market research people at companies is just how, do you, how are you as current as possible to enable the decision makers in your company to be as agile as possible? Oh my gosh, that's the question. Yeah. <laughs> and you alluded to just how hard it is because again, people have built a lot of structures around that from bonus structures to hierarchy within departments and on and on. But I, I will go back and just the thing you talked about with uh, healthcare brought me back to your podcast with uh, the head of CVS. And so I'll put that in the show notes if anybody is interested in that data that you were talking about, about how telehealth, you know, had a big P kind of comes down and how you see it uh, potentially growing. I think that would be a really good uh, listen also. I, I love the podcast. John, thank you so much for your time. I just as a favor <laughs> to me for doing this, I want to extend a favor to you. You know, give, give a shameless plug for, you know, civic science intelligence and what you're doing there and who really could benefit the most from taking a look at at what your data is and how you actually get that data in order to enrich what's going on already in your house. Well, look, we, anybody who's trying to make smarter, more forward-looking decisions for their business is someone that should be talking to us. We've proven ourselves really good partners um, with the companies that we work with. We do, you know, we also aren't just sharing this data to people in a, in a vacuum. We, we understand their business. We understand the categories they're operating in. We have competitive intelligence without divulging anything proprietary, of course, that, you know, so, so you know, our clients span marketing finance, supply chain and logistics, um, HR, communications and public affairs, right? Anyone who touches a consumer or a worker, by the way, which is another whole, whole other can of worms we could talk about is how the workforce is evolving. Um, anyone who's touching, interacting with, and who's, you know, the health of their business is dependent on those people, um, we can really help. And, and, um, and we've proven to a lot of big businesses that we, we can do that well. I love it. Thank you, Priscilla, for having me. I I really appreciate being here. Time just flew by. I know. Uh, I think that was particularly funny, but um, we were talking talking about some pretty serious stuff. So, yeah. We are, but to me, I think it's more like this self-effacing is like, we may not have all the right answers, but I think that we're just staying um, flexible with um, what's coming, what's emerging and saying, but how could we do this better? And I think that is an attitude um, and it translates into a mindset that we can bring into business. And I think, you know, as so much continues continues to go into so much more flux, which you and I both believe it will. I believe people who think like you and I think will become more and more valuable. Just, we don't need to polarize things. We don't need to have an exact structure. Um, There are systems that can keep, you know, some guardrails for us, but we're open to the next idea 
And I, I think that's going to be incredibly valuable as we go forward. Couldn't agree more. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on, but I'm telling you right now, everybody, there's this, these show notes are going to be rich with a lot of links. So go check that out and also check out John Dick's uh, podcast. It is the dumbest guy in the room, which see, that's funny. You were just funny just... with your title. So we made it. <laughs> yeah. The first time I invited somebody on to be a guest and I told them that was the name. It sounded as if I was saying that the guest was going to be the dumbest guy in the room. So I had to be really, really clear about that. Really clear. Don't want to insult your guests. You do have amazing guests on there. So definitely go check that out or go check them out at civicscience.com and learn a little bit more about what's going on. But to all of you who need to take that next step in digital transformation, we hope we helped you today. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.